Today, uh, I really am committed to this. We're going to finish Jude. Is that okay? I mean, I want to finish Jude. So, <laughs> Pick up with verses 20 and 21, uh, which is where we, uh, I think, kind of uh, left off. Um, the last part of the of the this little epistle, this little letter, seventeen through twenty three, and I did it that way in your notes. It divided into three parts. Part one is the to recall what he has been saying about the false teachers, and number two to edify, and that's what I've done up here. Um, I hope you don't mind I did it this way because I think it really. Uh, accentuates and emphasizes um, what pe- what Jude is trying to say here. Now, let's make sure we know what edification means, because in, in, in a real sense, that's what he says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up. To build yourself up is to edify. Does that make sense? In other words, edification as a noun or edify as a verb means to build up, to strengthen, and so what Jude is doing here, and this is, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm just going to talk as if I were teaching English grammar or something. I'm not. But this is uh, what you have to do, and you can only do this in the original language. When you're translating something from one language into English or any other language, that's always a little bit of the struggle. How do you show that? When you are studying it in the original language, it's very clear. I may have lost you in those last two sentences, but here's my my point. Where's the command in verses 20 and 21? What's the command? The command is keep in the love of God. That's the command. And as you know, if you understood, remember diagramming in English grammar, you have to dust off the cobwebs of your mind to remember that. But do any of you remember diagramming sentences in English grammar class? Okay, so the value of that is you start to be able to see the syntax, the breakdown of the sentences in language. And this is really important in two verses like this. So how do you keep yourselves in the love of God? How do you remain built up and strong in your faith? Three ways. And if you want the grammar, these are three participles. Three participles that modify this. So if you're going to diagram it, that's just how you would diagram it. So I hope that's all right that I did this. Because it really gives understanding to these three verses, uh, these two verses. The command is, Jude is saying, the most important thing you can do in dealing with the false teaching and false doctrine that's out there and that wants to creep into your church is keep yourself in the love of God. How do you do that? By building yourself up in the most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, and by waiting for the mercy of the Lord. So this is this is all about the Word of God, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. We talked about that before. <coughs> faith in the New Testament can mean either the faith, the act by which you put your faith in Jesus Christ, or it can mean faith as the Christian faith, that body of doctrine, the body of belief. So what do you think he's saying here? Well, it's the Christian faith, building yourself up in And the only way you can do that is in the Word of God. Second is praying. This is the focus on your relationship with the living God. 
It's that we've talked about that many times if you've been around this class for a while. Prayer is that vital center of our intimacy and our relationship, our fellowship with the Lord. And I've encouraged you before, I know I've said that, a 24-7 conversation with God, beginning that discipline of just talking to him about everything, bringing him into everything in your life. And then thirdly, waiting for the mercy of the Lord, that's hope. And the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ is his return, his return for us, which is the most magnificent, gracious, magnanimous act of our God. He's promised to come back for us. And as he says in John chapter 14, Jesus says, where I am, you will be. Where I'm going, I'm going back to the Father. Where I'm going, I'm making a place for you, I'm praying a place for you. But I'm coming back for you. And then you will be with me forever when I come back for you. So all Jude is doing is saying, how do I keep myself in the love of God? How do I keep my focus and the center of my life on the Lord? How do I do that? Three ways. Standing in the word of God, fostering and cultivating that relationship with him through prayer, which is fostered by and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and keeping my focus on eternity, the hope he promised to come back for me. And so it's just it's a magnificent summary of, of how do we build ourselves up and stay in the love of stay in a and live a life where God is the center of my life. And that's why this is one two of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Because it so summarizes the teachings of the New Testament. The Word of God cultivating the intimate relationship with the living God and having a hope. Hope centered on what the Lord promised. He's coming back for us. Waiting for that. The, the, the word waiting is um, the wonder, it's a wonderful Greek word. Waiting is a tiptoe kind of anticipation. It's not just, someone has defined hope as uh, expectancy with desire. You not only expect it to happen, you desire it to happen. You want it to happen. And so that waiting is that tiptoe anticipation and expectation and excitement that the Lord promised to come back for me. And he's going to do that. Nobody said amen, so that means you either didn't get it or you're... No, I just want to make sure that it's just a magnificent... It's a magnificent summary of what the Christian life should look like. And that's why I, I hope it's right I did this. I hope you understand what I did. I thought I'd diagram this, like you diagram a sentence. It really helps you to understand. What's the command? Keep yourself in the love of God. How do I do that? And the grammar is by three participles, but the grammar is focusing on the Word of God, cultivating the relationship with the Lord, and fostering that hope which is central to the Christian's life. Jim, just a short uh, comment on it uh, from you, is in terms of sequence, uh, the millennial reign is subsequent to the rapture, right? Oh my, yes. (laughs) There's a lot that has to happen, but the first event in the end time program of the Lord is the rapture of the church. Wherever you're going to put it, that's the next major event. All right. Any questions? That I mean, I you know I, I hope this is clear. And the only way I thought I could clarify it was by doing a little diagram on the board, because otherwise you have these things don't seem connected. 
And this is what gives us the ability to connect it. So verse 22 and 23, and then the only thing left in the, in the book is this magnificent, glorious benediction, one of the greatest benedictions in the scriptures, is how we'll close it out. But Jude has one more thing to do. If you are edified and your focus is on keeping my focus on the Lord, you know, keep in the love of God, that's how uh, ESV translates it. If that's true, then it's going to affect how I relate to other people. In a very real sense, 20 through 23 is a summary of what the Lord said when he was asked the question by the Pharisees, what's the greatest commandment? Remember his answer? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And all Jude is, in a sense, all Jude is doing is just embellishing that, helping us to understand what that looks like. So, verse 20 and 21 is keeping your focus on the Lord. Verse 23 is, or 22 and 23 is now, because my focus is on the Lord, how will this affect how I relate to other people? And have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, <clears throat> and to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now, that's not an easy read. But look, let's take it apart. There are three aspects, three dimensions of our relationship with others. First of all, have mercy on those who doubt. Now let's take, um, let's take the word doubt and work our way back to the verb, have mercy. Doubt. <clears throat> At first, you think doubt's negative, evil, wrong, should never be. Have you had doubts about your faith, about God, about his goodness, about his grace? Now, if you're telling me you've never had those, you're sitting here in this room on this lovely rainy day, and you're lying to me. <laughs> Because we've all had doubts. Doubt is normal. One of my favorite examples of this is in the Gospel of Mark. I think it's chapter 10. I forget the exact chapter. But a man comes to Jesus and um, wants Jesus to come and heal his daughter who's dying. And, and Jesus delays. And, and Jesus says, in effect, I'll deal with it. As a matter of fact, I'm dealing with it now. And he said to this man, Jesus said this, do you believe? I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. Now that sounds like an oxymoron. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Because what Jesus is saying, he's giving him absolutely no evidence that he's at acting in dealing with his sick daughter. And Jesus said, do you believe? Okay, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I still have some doubts. So, doubt, now listen very carefully to this. Doubt is a positive thing in a Christian's life. If we seek to get it resolved through the word of God. Doubt, I'm not, in other words, doubt is a normal 
It's certainly not abnormal. A normal aspect of a Christian's life. If someone you care about and love very dearly gets very, very sick, possibly with terminal illness, it is going to be very natural for you to have doubt about God's goodness. And that's hard. That's, that's the hard thing of living this side of eternity. We trust the Lord, but it's when we get into very difficult circumstances, situations, tragedies, unexpected developments, that's natural to have doubts come in. So Jude says, show mercy on those who doubt. Jude is saying, you will experience it and you will be around. Because he's, these are people who are believers. Show mercy to those who have doubts. I, you know, I've raised two children. And somehow the Lord enabled us to get through that disease called adolescence. And it is a very serious disease. Generally, the, the children survive it. Parents, it's always doubtful. But I remember it with my kids. And I remember as they were going through all the different <coughs> stages of development, adolescence, and so on, they constantly were asking me questions that expressed doubt. Doubts about things. Dad? You know, everything I'm hearing in school, and I've got friends, and Joanna played baseball and stuff. One was a Buddhist, another one was a Hindu, and she's saying, Dad, how do we know that Christianity is really, truly the only way to God? That's a great question, isn't it? And that's a question that expresses some doubt. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's not an inclusivistic verse. That's not a, that's not a verse that says, y'all come, it doesn't matter how you get there, just y'all come. No, there's one way to the Father. It's through Jesus. I'm just saying that, that James, Jude is saying, have mercy on those who doubt. Help them to resolve that. Every doubt can be resolved through truth. Then more and more and more, at least in the ministry I have now, as well in both my former ministry with students at Grace and now my church, I'm just constantly being bombarded by questions. Our church has a little thing, Ask Dr. Ekman, and I get one or two questions every week from people, and almost always those questions are not, I didn't understand what you were saying in your sermon on Sunday. It's because of your sermon on Sunday, these are the questions that I don't, I don't have an answer for. Uh, one guy, his daughter, I, I did a, a series on human sexuality, and his daughter is really struggling with us. And she got onto a website which is saying all the biblical teaching about Sexuality is wrong, it's narrow, it's, it's bigoted. Here is the right way to... Pro and, and she was really struggling through this. And he cried, Dad, as a dad, he said, help me, I don't know what to say to her. I'm saying, because that's... What's your response to that? Come on, get in line, hammer her into submission, or have mercy and help this young gal resolve these doubts. That's what Jude is saying. And if you've raised your children, you know exactly what happens as the kids are growing up. But you're in ministry with people. I mean, I've had around this, this table over the years, I've had some fantastic questions from you guys. And most of them are, it's not doubt. 
it, although it might be, but it's, 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 I don't understand this. And if you don't get it resolved, it can lead to more serious doubt. Do I really believe what the Bible is saying? And that's what Jude is saying. Does that make sense? It's how you respond to somebody with questions and how they, the kinds of questions they raise that can even illustrate doubt. Help my unbelief, the Father says to Jesus. John? No. Merciful in this sense then really means the understanding. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, a dimension of mercy is... Compassion, understanding, grace, yes, absolutely. As against dismissive. Exactly. Yes, that's not important. Get out of my way. (laughs) I don't want to hear any questions. This is the truth. Accept it. That's true. It is the truth. I want you to accept it, but I want you to understand it. Joel, you? Is it uh, it true that a lot of, or some of the better-known cult leaders don't allow any room for doubt. I mean, what they say is to be taken with absolute. It's a good comment. That's I mean, a good. Is that not? Yeah, that's a good, true. good comment. Good observation. That is generally, that is generally the case. You accept it, no question, no doubt. Um, and yet here's James, the brother of Jesus. Yeah. Saying, hey. Yes. Go easy. Yes. Is even you think of Jesus. Um, in his public ministry, it's so short, it's only three years, we have such a, uh, you know, the, all the gospel writers are selective in what they want to what they want to st- focus on, stress. Um, but you have the same thing with Jesus. If the Pharisees are asking him a question that is based on their desire to trap him, he's hard on them because he knows their heart. But if, it, like this father... Or if the disciples ask him a question, and it's a genuine question that expresses a misunderstanding, Jesus wants to resolve that. And I think, uh, Joel, I think that's one of the reasons why, um, and I, I, I mean this sincerely, <coughs> genuine biblical Christianity welcomes questions and welcomes doubts. Because every single person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ comes to faith in Jesus Christ because they find their doubts and questions ultimately resolved in Christ. Doesn't mean they understand everything, but it really it it, it is really really true. Um, and the great strides that have been made in Christianity in its two thousand year history has been lar- have been largely because of that. That was one of the challenges. What happened to the Reformation? As the Reformation uh, over 150 years, roughly, till we say it ended, uh, it became more and more dogmatic and more and more intolerant. And that, when that happens, that gets that gets to be a real problem. It's welcome. We're, you're welcome. We will answer your questions. Welcome. We will help resolve your doubts. And that's that's a very that's a it's a very different because most I don't know about you. I mean I'm. I'm old now, but in all the 35 years of my ministry, when I first started, the thing I always, always was intimidated by, whether I was speaking or teaching, was question, were questions. I'm not anymore. Not, not because I know everything. I don't. But simply because I've come to that position, if I don't know the answer, 
I will take the time to find the answer for you because I want you to get your doubts resolved. If the Bible is true, then we can take the risk of saying the answers are here. If I don't know them, I'll find them for you. Do you think James had um, a half-brother of Jesus growing up in a family? Actually, Jude here. I mean, uh, but yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, but yeah, I was about correct. James too, because that's the other brother. And, and uh, having doubts, perhaps. I mean, it wasn't just automatic. Absolutely. Paul tells us in First Corinthians 15, James, the other brother, did not come to faith till after the resurrection. Yeah, that's right. He wanted nothing to do with his brother until after the resurrection, because that proved to him, well, and it did to a lot of people. But it proved to him that what Jesus was saying about himself was true. That it had to be proven to him in the resurrection. That was true. And Paul, I mean, Paul, Paul heard all this stuff too. Now he wasn't with Jesus, but he heard all this stuff too. And he he absolutely says wrong. And he even got special permission from the high priest in Jerusalem to go up and wipe out that group of Christians that's growing the little church in Damascus. And Jesus said, Okay. Time for me to Lasso this guy in. She did. Why, why do some Christians deny that Christ had brothers? Um, largely, those some Christians are the Roman Catholic faith. Um, I think I had answered that question earlier. So, but I'll. No, no, that's right. You probably weren't here. No, no, it's a great question. Please don't. That's a great question. Matthew chapter 13, the end of the chapter, uh, identifies the siblings of Jesus. But the answer to your question really is. Um, I don't, I don't know how to say this without it sounding like I'm being critical, but I don't know how else to answer the question. In order to preserve the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is a key Roman Catholic teaching, it is not sourced in Scripture, it's sourced in tradition, they cannot have Mary having sexual intercourse with Joseph and producing other children. So in that passage in Matthew chapter 13, they translate Adolphos, which is the Greek term there, as cousin which is a highly unusual translation of that word. But it's to preserve that, um, it's to preserve that key uh, dogmatic question um, so central to their, uh, to their tradition. The perpetual virginity of Mary. They, they, they have to protect that. He had three brothers and two sisters. Is that correct, what I read? I, be, I believe that's how it's identified. You know. All right, let's move on. Number two, uh, by number two, are the items that indicate how do we show love to others, have mercy on those who doubt, verse 23. Now, notice how Jude puts this, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Um, now, don't, it's a metaphor. Don't make much of that. All he's saying is be an agent of the gospel. Be an agent of the gospel, because when a person comes to faith, you're snatching them out of judgment. In the Bible, fire is always a metaphor for judgment. It's all over the place. It's always a metaphor for judgment. So what's he saying? Simplify. What's he saying? 
Be an agent of the gospel. Proclaim and live the gospel. In doing that, you will be the agent God will use to bring people to faith. <coughs> and so, again, I mean, you read that at first, and what in the world does that mean? Well, save others by snatching them out of... If the gospel is about people responding to the truth that Jesus is and no longer being an object of God's judgment, but now an object of God's grace and mercy, which happens when we put our faith in Christ. And so it's what, you know, the, the gospel is that which saves people from judgment. Why? Because Jesus, Jesus went to the cross to be judged by the Father on our behalf. And when we say, I believe that, then we become that transformed person. Uh, and, and that's what Jude is saying. That's another way of indicating your love for people. So how do I treat other Christians? Show mercy on those who have doubts. Number two, be an agent of God's grace. Live out the gospel. And by doing that, you will bring others to faith. Save them from judgment. And I think maybe don't turn away from those right. you know, that have doubts. Exactly. Exactly. And then the third, the third group is, and to others. What others? The first group are those who have already come to faith. Help them resolve their doubts. Two, be an agent of the gospel. But to others, those who have rejected the message at that point in their life. Show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now listen. You know, another way of putting this, hating even the garment stained by flesh, love the sinner, hate the sin. That's what he's really saying. Show mercy to the others. Who are the others? Those who defiantly reject the message. Love them. Hate their sin, but love them. Saturday night, I got a text message from a friend um, in our church, and she and her husband have been in uh, our Sunday Bible study for quite a long time. Uh, Peggy and I had been praying for her brother. Her brother lives in Florida. He's dying of pancreatic cancer. Very, He's in his last days. And Rachel was so concerned because she didn't have the certainty that her brother really knew the Lord. And so she texted me on Sunday night, or Saturday night, excuse me, Three o'clock this afternoon, my brother put his faith in Christ. Amen. And that's 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 what Jude is talking about here. This guy, he he's very successful. Um, his most of his life was I can't see the need for Christ. Why why do I need him? You know, Rachel and her other brother Ken, who's another believer. Um, you know. We, we, we want you to come. Well, I don't really see the need to do this. You know, is this kind of? I know if you've ever known. I've known many, 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 many people like that. Um, but he gets cancer, and it's a type of cancer that's going to take his life. He knows it. Everybody knows it. It's been incredible. He's lived well over a year, but now, I mean, he is. He's in his last days. I'm expecting a text any day now that he's going to be with the Lord. But she was jubilant simply because 
her, her brother is one of those trophies of the grace of God. I mean, he really is. And it's just from that perspective, and I hope you understand the spirit in which I'm saying that, from that perspective, him getting cancer was an eternally good thing. You have to really qualify how I said that. But you understand what I'm saying? Because of him getting cancer, knowing that his, his death is imminent, he realized this is eternally significant. I must decide. What am I going to do with Christ? And it just is kind of a neat summary of some of the St. Jesus. How does she treat him? She loved him. She, did, she hated what he was doing. She hated his life, but she loved her brother, and she kept showing that love to him. And so it's just, it's the kind of, again, you take these four verses, love the Lord, love others. Here's how I keep my focus and keep God the center of my life. What does loving other people? <coughs> so mercy on those who doubt, be the agent of God's grace, the gospel, and to others who are defiant and rejecting, love the sinner, but detest the sin. You know, the stained by the garments, garments stained by the flesh. That's a Hebrew idiom. It's, you don't like what they're doing, but as long as they're taking breath, there's the hope that they'll come to faith. Go ahead. Uh, explain more the mercy of the fury. What's the width fury? Um, fear of being pulled into it? Fear of, what was the, be cautious about it? Yes, that's a great word. Be cautious about it, because as you reach out to people, you want to be very, very careful that you're not drawn in to the lifestyle of sin that they're living. Or even the drama about it. Could, could even be that, yeah. Yeah. But mercy with fear, fear in the sense of, uh, that's a great word that's used there in the original, uh, be, be very wise and be very, very careful that you're not drawn in to what they're doing and the lifestyle they're living. You hate the sin. You love the sinner. Um, Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter 6. You who are spiritual, you know, reach out to, to, to those, but be very wise in how you do that, so that you do not get drawn into the, the lifestyle they're living uh, as well. Well, I don't get to say this very often, but we're almost done with this book. The last couple of verses, and particularly verse uh, 25, is a wonderful benediction. But just notice verse 24 and 25. Now, to him be obviously God who is able. By the way, I love that, who is able. I, did, I one time preached a message on just that God is able. And I looked in a concordance how many times in the New Testament that is stated. What God is able to do. Now, by the way, that's, you know what a concordance is? Just take that sometime. Just track down how many verses declare God is able. <laughs> this is one of them. Able to do what? Keep you from stumbling. To present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. When will that happen? We're waiting for the mercy of the Lord. To be. When he returns for us, Jesus will present us to the Father. 
And then it tells us in the book of, of, of Ephesians that we will then be shown off to the angelic host, the grace of God. This is what it's all about, angels. You guys don't understand it because you don't have the need that they do, but this is what it's all about. I'm embellishing a little bit of that, but that he'll present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Did you notice that? Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time at creation and now and forever. Eternity, future. Jude bookends it. Creation and eternal eternity in the future. It's just a wonderful and, and, and quite glorious benediction. Glory, majesty, dominion, authority, see book of Revelation. <laughs> chapters 5 and 6. Chapters 20, 21, where you see that magnificently described in detail. Now, to him who's able to do what? Keep you from stumbling, present you blameless. To our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, mediator between humans and God, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority. As it was before all things were created, and as it will be in the new heaven and new earth, now and forever. And then he adds, Amen. Amen means so be it, as you know. Yes, John. Yeah. Um, these last two verses are titled a doxology yeah. in my Bible. Yeah. I refer to it as a benediction, and I've often heard it used as a benediction, which I think is wonderful. But is there a difference between doxology and benediction? Benediction is like uh, a final statement ending something, a benediction after a funeral. Like benediction. Service. Whereas a doxology is a, is a call to praise. Okay. Doxology is a call to praise. And doxology can be accomplished through the preaching of God's word as well as the singing of God's praises. Good theology plus good hymnology produces proper doxology. That might be going on there. I hope you got what I just said. So I don't know. All right. We're done with the book of Jude. I don't get to say that very often in this class that we're done with anything. But um, I hope, um, as I, I think I mentioned one or two times, Jude is one of my favorite New Testament books. It's so short, but it's, uh, it's just jammed with tremendous truth. And I hope, whether you agree with me or not, that it's one of your favorites. I hope you certainly would agree it's worthwhile studying. So that's what we've done. Any questions? Final question? Yes, Tom, please. Um, you know, when you share the gospel with somebody and they, they accept Christ in your life, you know, it's, it's a whole wholehearted decision. I had a question a couple weeks ago. I had shared with somebody and they did that. And he asked me, is that Jesus living in my heart or the Holy Spirit? Yeah, so... What's that? No. Well, um... <laughs> that's a category question yeah, yeah. <laughs> because God is one essence of yeah, three persons right, right. so you know the, the answer that I give to something like that Tom is just because if somebody just come to faith they, mm-hmm. they're overwhelmed by everything but yeah. 
is simply to um, either, even if I have time, take them to that passage in John, uh, the Gospel of John uh, 15 and 16, but where Jesus says, I'm going back to the Father. My work is completed. Now I'm sending my spirit who would dwell you. So the way I like to put it, it is Christ's spirit that lives within you. The Holy Spirit that he promised, because his work is finished. Death, burial, and resurrection is finished. He's back to the Father. So it's again, it's that category issue of the three members of the Godhead, yeah. one essence of three persons. But yeah. that's really, uh, if can be blunt, Tom, that's the biblical answer. It is Christ's spirit who lives within us. The spirit he promised, the third person of the Trinity. But, you know, like Paul says in Ephesians 1, the Father chooses, the Son redeems, the Spirit seals. Mm -hmm. There's the three works of the Spirit in our redemption. So it is Christ's Spirit who lives within us, which he promised before we went back to the Father. All right, uh, Rob. One of the things I found this book profound. Good, I'm glad to hear that. Ties together some words that I learned here. Pluralism and syncretism. Yeah. And it seems to me that those are two categories of deviance from the truth. Oh, absolutely. I agree. And so this, I don't know, it, it, it tied that together for yeah. me, and it happened to be very tied to some other studies. Good, good. Remember the thesis of the book is contend for the faith once delivered. It's, it assumes there is a faith that we can know, and it's it's been given. It's not God's not keeping to give more revelation. It's it's been given. 